Um, I'm going to finish off reading um, the rest of chapter four from last week. Uh, so that'll start at verse 32, and then we'll carry on into uh, chapter five. Um, quick recap. Last week, we read about how Jesus is continuing to do great works through um, Peter and John, specifically we saw last week, as they healed a lame man, uh, and that gave them opportunity to explain the gospel to loads more people. They were arrested and told to stop talking about Jesus. They didn't. Uh, again, had an opportunity to explain the gospel to loads of people. People were saved, and they all prayed that they would continue to speak about Jesus with boldness, even in the face of opposition. Um, and we saw that they did indeed, the Holy Spirit filled them, and they did continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So pick up with me, chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, now, I won't read through the account of Ananias and Sapphira. You heard Eleanor explain that, that they uh, lied to God, lied to the people of God about how much they'd sold something for, and um, they died in that instant. Um, but skip through to in chapter 5 down to verse 17, um, and we pick up after the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and um, also there's another account of how Jesus is continuing to do um, lots of miracles through the apostles, and more and more people are being saved. And then let's start reading at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. 
And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Well, uh, I'm still a bit new here, so I thought I'd start by telling you a little bit about myself. Really, it's just one kind of specific thing, uh, and that is that I once had a very promising touch footy career. Uh, I played a grand total of three and a half games, uh, and the important thing to know is that I won all of them. Uh, and you'll never convince me it was because I had a professional footy player on my team. Uh, I had something great going, but the reason why I only played four games was because in my fourth game, I bent over, and as I was running, part of my spine decided I didn't want to fully sit on top of the rest of the spine, it hurt my back, and I've never played since. Great things can often face great dangers that can derail it. You know, uh, orange juice is something that is great, but it's completely derailed if you brush your teeth right before you have some. <laughs> uh, Walkmans, if you remember those, are a great bit of technology, but they were completely derailed by the new technology of iPods and other such things. Uh, a little more seriously, there are great things like the Hindenburg. Uh, it was one of the early passenger-carrying airships. It was a great uh, advancing technology, but uh, if you know the story, it was actually 
filled with hydrogen, which was what caused it to fly, which eventually caught fire and it, and it killed a whole bunch of people. And it was really tragic and horrible. Uh, great things often face great dangers that can derail it and it can cause serious problems. In the passage we're looking at today, the question we see is, what does a great church look like and what are the great dangers that can derail it? What does a great church look like and what are the great dangers that can derail it? Now, if you're new here, it's great that you're here this morning. You might be thinking, why do I need to hear about what a great church looks like and the dangers that can derail it? Well, I reckon there's lots of distortions of church out there, either what you think about church or maybe you've had some experiences of church. This passage is going to show you a picture of church that I think is going to be different to what you're expecting. A picture of something that I reckon you'll want to be part of when you see the picture of what it is. And I hope that you find it here at church. If you're a regular here, this is a great passage because it's going to inspire us and lift our eyes to see what church really is and can be. And it's a warning about how we can move away from the church that God wants us to be. So it's great that you're here this morning. What does a great church look like and what are the dangers that can derail it? Well, let's look at the first section. Point one, we see the idyllic church. In this first section, we see this beautiful community of, the, of God's people, of church, and we're kind of supposed to think, wow, I want to be part of a community like that. Because what we see is a voluntarily selfless and sacrificial community centered around Jesus. A voluntarily selfless and sacrificial community centered around Jesus. Let me show you. Uh, they're selfless. Verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Their attitude was, how can I use whatever I have to love others? Not, how can I get more stuff for myself, which is what we often see. It's a community where people care more for others than they do themselves, and they put their money where their mouth is. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? They're totally selfless. And it was voluntary. No one was forced to do it. They wanted to. Uh, Verse 35, they laid their things at the apostles' feet for the good of others. They did it off their own back. They did it willingly. A voluntary action that came out of their love for others. And it was sacrificial. It wasn't just giving away the extra stuff that they won't really miss anyway. It cost people deeply. Uh, We see at the end the story of Barnabas. He gets highlighted because he sold his entire property and land. It, It cost him. People gave sacrificially. And it's incredible. But that's not all. They weren't just a community of hippies who just kind of shared their stuff. They were a community centered around Jesus. Have a look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This wasn't just an additional thing that they did. This is the core of who they are. Everything else comes after and in light of this, centered around Jesus. What a beautiful picture. What an amazing community. Now, this is not saying that we need to sell all of our stuff. This is a description of what they did, not a prescription of what we should do. But the principle of a voluntarily selfless and sacrificial community centered around Jesus, that is fundamental to being God's people. A place where everyone is welcomed, where people love sacrificially and are centered on the king of the universe who gives us life and meaning. 
Do you want to be a part of a community like that? I want to encourage you. I think this church has many of those characteristics. If you're new, this is an amazing place. You're not going to find many other places like this. See, even within families, sadly, lots of people don't experience something like this. It's really sad. Uh, There aren't many places where you'll go where people will genuinely love you, will welcome you, no matter what, and sacrifice for you. But if you stick around at this church, you're going to see it. Uh, It's been my experience in my very limited time of being around here. Um, To share with you, my dad passed away my first day of coming to church here. Um, I was here in the morning, and people have loved me incredibly, even though I don't know most of you. Uh, People have made us dinners brought us groceries, um, prayed for us, called us, given us space when we've needed it and been really patient when we just haven't had as much energy to do the things that that we'd like to do. It's a beautiful community. If you're new, I'd encourage you to stick around and and find out more. This is a picture of an idyllic church, but as we move on to the rest of the passage, we see that the church actually faces many great dangers in, under threat of being derailed. And we're going to see three dangers in particular that the early church faced. I think dangers that are uh, still very real for us today. The first danger is the danger of Satan and sin. So just after we meet this uh, legend, Barnabas, we meet a couple who are troubled, Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, I think they've probably seen people like Barnabas and probably thought, you know, people have been talking about how generous and godly and awesome and fantastic Barnabas is. How about we get in on the action? You know, I'd love for people to think that we're so godly and generous and awesome and fantastic, except I don't really want to get rid of all of our money. You know? It'd still be nice to have some money so we can you know, go to the grumpy baker on a Saturday morning and have breakfast out. Look, we're not obviously gonna, not going to get rid of our Netflix account. Otherwise, you know, what are we going to do at night? We're going to have to talk to each other or something. I don't know. So we need to keep some of our money. So how about... We sell our place and we give Peter some of the money, but tell him that's everything we got for it. And so we look good, but then we still get to keep some of our money. It's a win-win, right? But they're found to be lying and then crazily they get judged by God and both get killed on the spot. It's full on. And you read it and you go, what? Like, How do we make sense of a story like that? Uh, Is God going to kill me for lying? No. I think this story makes sense when you realise two things. First, this is a story that's played out with human characters, but there's actually something bigger going on. It's actually a battle between Satan and God in one of the first expressions of the church. Uh, See, in verse 3, we see that it's Satan who filled their hearts. And then twice, verse 3 and verse 9, we see that What they've done isn't actually against people, it's against God, the Holy Spirit. So this is a showdown between Satan and God at a really significant moment. It's kind of like Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader just after the Death Star's been built. At the start of the church, Satan's trying to destroy it. And so this story and the severe judgment, I think, make more sense when we realise the cosmic battle that's going on at a significant moment in history. The second thing to help us make sense of this passage, I think, is to realise there's actually a moment of God's great mercy. How's that? 
Well, God, he stamps out a serious threat that if led to spread, it will destroy God's people. See, holiness is really important to God. It's serious. Partly because sin is destructive and it can derail the church. Uh, Here, the, the sin was to make themselves look more generous than they were. It's the kind of thing that undermines everything that was happening in chapter 4, everything the church was trying to do and be. Uh, It encourages selfishness, not selflessness. And it takes the focus off Jesus' name and puts the focus on building up your own name. It's totally destructive for a church. And God mercifully looks out for the church and after it by stamping out this kind of thing before it can spread. Now, is this a, a danger for us? I don't think too many of us are going to sell our house and then tell Kurt we sold it for 20 bucks and then, you know, to try and look good. But actually, our hearts often look for ways to seek the praise of people rather than the praise of God, right? Do you find that? Maybe we're only interested in serving in ways that other people can see so everyone knows that I'm gifted and I'm godly and serve. When you search your heart, what is it for you? On the positive side, there are people who do this really well, people who give a significant percentage of what they earn through online banking. It doesn't matter how much you earn, but it costs them greatly, and none of us will ever know who they are. But they do it anyway. It's amazing, isn't it? But sin and temptation from Satan are always a lurking danger for us. Holiness is important to God, and a lack of it can be destructive to God's people. But you see, danger doesn't only come from inside the church. Next, we see the danger of opposition from the outside. And so from chapter 5, verse 12, the apostles are preaching, they're doing miracles, people are getting saved and healed, it's fantastic. But then the religious leaders are jealous, and so they put them in prison. Uh, And then an angel uh, goes full prison break and gets them out and says, go back to where you were arrested, preach the thing that got you arrested in the place where the people who arrested you are definitely going to find you. And then they do it. Like, it's crazy, isn't it? Amazing boldness. And so then, of course, the apostles, they go out, they do it, and they get caught, brought straight back to court, of course, and they're forbidden from talking about Jesus. Verse 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. And did you see the apostles' response? Verse 29, we must obey God, not men. There is nothing you can do to make us stop talking about Jesus. So they get beaten up, and they're let go. And then verse 41, they go away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. It's incredible, isn't it? Like how annoying and impossible would the apostles have been to the rulers? Uh, you know, they get put in prison, they go, hey, we've got some new people to tell about Jesus. They get broken out, and so they go keep preaching. Uh, they're forbidden from speaking about Jesus, and they say, well, we can't do that. And say, so, okay, well, let's beat them up and discourage them. And then they go away rejoicing. Like, what do you do with them? The leaders are seriously opposing the church and trying to put a stop to the church and what they're trying to do. And opposition is a serious danger to the church. But here we see it doesn't stop the message of Jesus. And our opposition isn't something that happened kind of just back then. It happens today. Uh, our old student minister, James, if you ever met him, was recently preaching at a church where he lives. Uh, and he got told two days beforehand that the police were going to come on the day that he was going to preach. Now, we didn't know exactly what the police were coming for, but it probably wasn't to say, good work, keep going. Uh, Now, they ended up coming the next day, 
but churches are severely opposed where he lives. Uh, and increasingly it's happening here. There's a, a bill in Melbourne that just got passed. You might have heard about it, which says you can't pray for or tell someone what the Bible says about sex and gender in kind of a pastoral situation. You can go to jail if you do it. The opposition tries to stop us from doing what the church is called to do and preach the gospel. Uh, where do we feel the strain of this in the eastern suburbs? Probably lots of places. Uh, but one place is among our friends and our family and our colleagues, right? When people are slagging on Christians, you know, we're bigots and we hate people. Is opposition going to stop us in that moment from saying, yeah, I follow Jesus? Because that's what they want. We're going to come back to that in a minute and think a little bit more about that in a moment. But let's move on to the third danger. The danger of changing priorities. Start of chapter 6, we see a complaint from the Greek-speaking Jews against the Hebrews uh, about their widows being overlooked in the daily distribution of welfare. It was a significant issue. Social justice, uh, helping those in need and making sure it's fair is a big and important issue to sort out. But the Apostle said it's not the most important thing that needs to keep happening. They could have easily spent all their time serving tables, looking out for widows and people in need, but they couldn't let it stop them from prioritising the most important job. Have a look at verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Praying and preaching the good news about Jesus needs to be prioritised over serving tables. That's what they say. What's the thinking that goes on behind that? Well, I think it's the difference between understanding a Band-Aid over a cure. See, serving tables and providing for the needy is a little bit like a Band-Aid. It's good and it's important, but it's not a solution to the real problem. See, if we give someone food, they're going to live for a little bit longer, but they're still going to die one day and face God's judgment. But when someone hears and accepts the gospel, well, they live forever. That's the cure. There's so many ways that we can and should be looking after people's physical needs, but the priority for our church and our leaders is to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word so people are saved. We've got to do both, but we can't prioritise the band-aid over the cure. And so we've seen this idyllic picture of church, kind of this high calling of holiness and the danger of sin, We've seen the danger of opposition and this amazing boldness by the apostles. And we've seen the danger of changing priorities. But how can we possibly do it? I don't know about you, but when I read this stuff, I kind of think, wow, what an incredibly impossible standard. Anyone else think that? How do we live up to this idyllic church? How do we be as selfless and as loving? How can I have even 3% of the apostles' boldness? How can we grow in holiness and avoid the church being derailed by sin? And how can we keep preaching the gospel as a priority when there's so much stuff to be done in a suffering world? How how can we possibly live this out? Well, it's not by trying harder. That's not going to work. It's too hard. It comes back to chapter 5, verse 30 to 32. We must be captured by the message of the risen Lord Jesus and saviour we must be captured by the message of the risen lord and saviour 
See, when the apostles are in the courtroom and they're forbidden from talking about Jesus, they say, verse 29, we must obey God, not men. How do they do that? Well, they tell us, verse 30. They paint a clear picture of what they have in their minds and they're absolutely captured by this, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus was hung on a tree and took the curse of sin for us. And he was raised and exalted as Lord and ruler over the universe and the saviour of the world. This is an absolutely beautiful picture. Amazing news. Like It doesn't get better than that. There's nothing better out there. If you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, it's great that you're here. This is the one thing for you to hear this morning. Jesus is the Lord of the universe and he's a saviour and he offers you forgiveness. Now, why do you need forgiveness? It's because our relationship with God is broken. We broke it because we've treated God like he's dead by ignoring him, rejecting him, living like he doesn't exist. And when our relationship with God is broken, we're cut off from Him, we're, we're separated, which is a massive problem because God is the source of all life. And so being cut off from the source of life means we face death eternally. Like it's massive. We need forgiveness to be restored to relationship and life with God. If you want to find out more about that, please come to church next week, come back. We'll come to intro Jesus. We want to introduce you to the Jesus who loves you in a place where you can ask questions. Um, chuck that down in your connect card when you get a chance. I'll give you a call about it. We'd love to hear from you. If you're someone who does trust Jesus, the takeaway is to grow a bigger and clearer picture of the risen Lord and Saviour in your mind. That's the foundation for how we grow in all these things we see in this passage. Right? If we want to be a voluntarily selfless and sacrificial community centred around Jesus... We've got to be clear on this picture. Because when you see the risen king, you'll know that you're loved much. And so you'll love much. If you have a big picture of the king who voluntarily sacrificed everything for you, you'll do it for others. If you want to grow in holiness and deal with sin that tries to impress people rather than God, you need to know that Jesus is Lord of the universe and we're just his creatures. And so it makes absolutely no sense to big note ourselves instead of him. You'll want to big note Jesus. And it makes holiness not a chore, but something I really want to do. Because when you see the beauty of our risen king, you just want to be like him, don't you? When it comes to boldly sharing the gospel like the apostles, you'd never do it unless you see and know clearly that Jesus, the king of the universe, went through the pain of being hung on a tree to save us from the pain of hell. That's the only way that you'd cross that kind of invisible pain line of inviting your friends to church or to intro Jesus or sharing your faith with them. When you realise that the pain of others not being saved is more painful than the experience of people putting you down. And when it comes to priorities, it's easy to start prioritising mending the world physically unless we have a clear picture of what the risen king is doing. He could empty every hospital bed, but his priority is dying for us to give people life. At the start of this series, we said that Acts is about the mission of Jesus going forwards. 
And here we see Jesus at work in kind of each of these situations, keeping his mission going. Because even more than my touch footy career, God's church is really great, isn't it? But it's also constantly in great danger. And so let's be captured by the message of the risen Lord and Saviour to navigate these dangers and be the church God wants us to be.